0: Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: Hundreds of top political operatives, celebrities, and wealthy donors have had to change their weekend plans. Barack Obama has canceled his lavish 60th birthday party bash amid concerns about the spread of the Delta variant. Only close friends and family will celebrate at the Obama's mansion in Martha's Vineyard. Optics presumably played a part in the decision to scrap those party plans, as well as concern about the virus. In Washington, members of Congress have camped out on the Capitol steps to highlight the plight of renters facing eviction from their homes as a moratorium granted during the pandemic ran out. This is checks and balance. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. This week, it's with me, John Fasten, the Economist, U.S. Digital Editor. John Pritto is enjoying a well-earned rest. He'll be back next week. Today on the podcast, has the pandemic given America a chance to fix homelessness? The federal moratorium on evictions was extended this week as COVID cases surge again, Protests over the scheduled ending of the reprieve exposed a divide between the Biden administration and the Democratic left. The split is playing out in cities across the country as homelessness grows more visible. The pandemic gives policymakers rare political momentum and funding to tackle the problem, but will they? Joining me this week are Aaron Braun, our Mountain West correspondent who has written a fantastic lead note reported from Seattle on homelessness, and Idris Kaloun, our Washington correspondent. Aaron, you're one of the many people to flee the East Coast during the pandemic. How are things in Denver?
0: Things in Denver are good. Um, I had the joy of moving twice in a global pandemic, but all settled now and, and things are good.
1: Good. No wildfires?
0: Not in Denver. We alternate between heat waves, and torrential downpour this past week, so fun stuff.
1: Sounds great. Idris, how's Washington? Yeah, it's really nice. Um,
2: The abandoned building next to my apartment has now been completely torn down, and there is a pit where once a building stood, and this is one of, you know, 20 new condo buildings that are going up in Petworth, which is where I live. So a lot of things seem to be happening all of a sudden.
1: Well, D.C.'s housing market has been hot for years. But let's talk about the other end of the housing market. Let's talk about evictions. The Centers for Disease Control this week announced it would be extending a moratorium on evictions that's been in place through most of the pandemic. Idris, can you explain the reaction to that and what's been going on in D.C. this week? Yeah, absolutely, depending on how much detail you want. Um, As part of the CARES Act,
2: which was passed in March of 2020, there was an eviction moratorium that was put into place on certain kinds of housing. That expired in the middle of 2020. And for a while, there was no moratorium in place unless there was a state or local moratorium. In September of 2020, the CDC Uh, placed under their own public health authority on the grounds that evictions and foreclosures would spur movement and therefore the spread of the virus issued an order saying that that evictions and foreclosures could no longer go forward. That has been extended several times and it expired on July 31st. And in the run-up to it, there was a lot of discussion in Washington about what would happen afterwards. The Biden administration had been hesitant to extend it in part because they had gotten some unfavorable court rulings, including one from the Supreme Court, which suggested that the CDC had exceeded its authority. And if the extension were to continue, that uh, it would ultimately be vacated in court. So they decided to punt to Congress um, with only a few days notice. Congress didn't have the wherewithal to take it up. And ultimately, the Biden administration did an about-face and has now issued another order saying that in counties where there's a high level of COVID spread, um, and right now it's defined such that 90% of Americans would qualify, uh, they will have another moratorium that's been put in place. So there's been a lot of upheaval, a lot of attention has been driven, in part because Cori Bush, who's a progressive representative, has been camping out in front of Capitol Hill and sleeping there overnight to protest the lack of an eviction moratorium and to make the point that um, the House of Representatives, which had gone out of session, uh, should really be in place while Americans are dealing with um, what some advocates are calling a looming evictions wave.
1: Idris, do you have a sense of what the effect of the moratorium has been, what it's done, the real impact?
2: That's a pretty complicated question, in part because evictions are not tracked particularly closely, but to help make sense of it, we spoke to someone who spends all day thinking about these issues, uh, Peter Hepburn, who is a senior data scientist at Princeton University's eviction lab, which studies this stuff very closely.
3: We've monitored about 355,000 eviction filings during the course of the CDC eviction moratorium from the beginning of September through the end of July. Obviously, it's a lot of families who are facing the threat of being removed from their homes. But that's, that's still less than half of what we would expect to see under normal circumstances. It's about 46% of historical average. There is a lot of variation from site to site. Certainly the places that had strong protections in place, like the state of Minnesota, for instance, has a, a very strong eviction moratorium. And, and filings there have been below 20% of historical average over the course of the pandemic. Whereas in Tampa, Florida it's more like 80% of historical average. So even though you have something that is nominally uh, like a federal protection that should provide protection to all renters across the nation, it comes down to where you live and how your local jurisdiction is, is implementing and enforcing the order.
0: In
2: the last week, as I'm sure you've been seeing, right? There's been a lot of um, attention to the lapsing of the CEC moratorium and this fear that um, that there might be a wave of evictions that, that comes in this aftermath. To what extent can we know about what would happen if the CDC moratorium were were to go off?
3: There's a tremendous amount of uncertainty right now about what what happens next. Um, There is kind of a plausible scenario in which when the moratorium ends, we see a big spike in eviction filings. We know that based on pulse survey data, 16% of renters are behind on rent, which is you know, more than double what we would expect under normal circumstances. And we also know that they're further behind on rent. So, you know, normally you fall maybe half a month, a month behind on paying your landlord, and now you're dealing with people who are, you know, four or five, six months behind and, and catching up on that without, without some sort of assistance is going to be really hard. And you also know that like the relationships between tenants and landlords have been really strained over the course of the last, uh, 16 months. And that in some cases that's sort of an irreconcilable difference now, that even if even if that back rent were paid, the landlord is ready to move on and and try things with a new tenant. But there's also this you know, this other plausible scenario in which we have Congress has allocated forty six and a half billion dollars in rental assistance, which given the estimates that we see on how much back rent is owed, may well be sufficient to to, to pay all of that back rent and make landlords whole again and sort of remove the plausible cause for a lot of these eviction filings, which is non-payment of rent. The question is whether that actually can make it to the people who need it. And you know the data that we have so far suggests that it's not moving very quickly.
1: And one of the things that I found striking in, in Peter Hepburn's comments is the variance from city to city. I mean, I had thought, not having studied this, that a federal moratorium eviction would sort of cover everyone. But, you know, he said that there are very strong protections in in Minneapolis, not terribly strong protections in places like Tampa. How do things look out West?
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. There's a lot of difference depending on where people live. And when I was talking to people, Folks in Seattle and in California about what they thought was going to happen when the CDC's initial moratorium ended. There was a lot of uncertainty. And it's kind of an unsatisfying answer when you when you want to know, you know, what's likely to happen to all these folks that are in a really precarious situation. Um, But the short answer is. We don't know, and and the data is not great. And in Seattle, and in California at least, there are local moratoriums that would have kind of given people a buffer even when the federal moratorium expired. So there was not a huge risk of this cliff of evictions happening in places with local measures in place. Um, that said, that doesn't mean that some people weren't being evicted over the past year. Idris um, has done some reporting that's shown that actually there are people falling through the cracks, but local measures have really helped make sure that it's not thousands or millions of people.
1: Idris, how do people fall through the cracks? Why are people still being evicted where they are being evicted? So
2: like Aaron said, um, it matters a lot whether or not your local city or state has a moratorium in place. So the Government Accountability Office did a report where they examined 63 um, cities and states, and they found that if you just had the federal moratorium in place, you saw a 40% decline in evictions on average. And if you did have one in place, you saw roughly a 90% decrease. Um, So substantial differences depending on on what's going on. As far as why evictions are porous, and and by contrast, foreclosures on, on houses have been Very not porous. Those have actually come close to almost stopping. Um, But the reason that evictions have been able to go forward is that the CDC prohibits evictions on the basis of non payment of rent. And there are other reasons that you can get evicted, Um, for example, being loud or um, complaints or these sorts of things. And there's an argument that landlords who are keen to evict tenants who are not paying are able to find other reasons to evict, and depending on the municipality, whether or not they're actually processing the eviction cases, which some of them are not, um, you're able to go through
1: with them in that case. So, Idris, given that local moratoria are much more effective than the federal one, and that the Supreme Court took a fairly dim view of the CDC's authority to even issue such a moratorium, why do you think they they reinstituted it? What was it that pushed them to do it again? Well, you saw that
2: Joe Biden was clearly ambivalent about doing it. The advice that he had been getting was that um, instituting or continuing an eviction moratorium would be Unconstitutional. And he seemed to suggest that as well when he spoke about it. He said that he had to seek outside counsel to justify this. I mean, the basic answer for why he did it is that he bowed to pressure from the Democratic left, that this campaign was actually quite effective. A lot of landlords are are not happy with the fact that they have tenants who could be not paying indefinitely and they have very little recourse. And they argue that this is a violation of the Fifth Amendment protection against taking of property without due compensation. This wound its way up to the courts and it eventually found its way to the Supreme Court in which five of the justices ultimately said that, you know, the eviction moratorium could last. But Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh, who was one of the five, gave a concurring opinion. It's not a full opinion, but he gave a short paragraph in which he said that he believed that the CDC had exceeded its existing statutory authority by issuing a nationwide eviction moratorium. But he also said... That because the CDC planned to end the eviction moratorium on July 31st, he was not going to basically lift it because he wanted to give the CDC and authorities more time to actually administer the rental assistance. That, so that's very clear that if it comes before the Supreme Court again, which I imagine that it would, that it would go. And I think Joe Biden – this this opinion was issued in June. Joe Biden clearly knew that and was seeking other options for that reason. I think that they, they waited – a bit too late to pass the hot potato to Congress. And because of that, he got himself into a situation where they had to issue this new eviction moratorium. The justification is different, right? It's couched in uh, where case rates are rising. So perhaps it has a better chance of surviving in courts. But so far, courts have not looked on it particularly kindly, and I don't know that it will survive much longer. What's confused me a, a bit about this whole episode has been as, as Peter Hepburn said, you know, Congress appropriated $46 billion in rental assistance funds to cover the renters who are behind on the rent and make the landlords who have not gotten paid uh, whole. And that money has been dispersed extremely slowly. So can you talk a bit about that? Why has it been dispersed so slowly? It's been dispersed really slowly because it has required more than 400 separate programs to be created for the disbursement of those funds um, in cities and in states. And those cities and states vary dramatically in their ability to actually get that money out the door. So, an original draft, uh, an original application in California before it was revised, I, I read, was reportedly taking three hours to complete um, there's a lot of difficult verification that has to go into effect because you have to get the renter and the landlord to agree you have to investigate to make sure the claim is accurate and then you send the money out but you know the amount of money that's been dispersed despite this program be- existing since December um, has been very small less than 10 percent as 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 late as June. and the energy is on a fairly blunt tool that exists because it it's sort of easy to to put into place but In my mind, the difficulty is is getting that money out that's already been appropriated, that actually sort of cuts the Gordian knot, um, if only you can get the money out.
1: So do you think it's possible that the Biden administration enacted the moratorium as sort of a play for time, knowing that it would be struck down by the courts, but figuring if they could somehow give governments an extra three or four weeks as the challenge wound its way through its courts to get the money out, that that would basically accomplish the purpose it set out to do, which is to keep people in their homes?
2: I think it'd be a reasonable political strategy. I think that if you end up, because at the end of, of that scenario, you know, progressive villainize John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh and not Joe Biden, who is currently who they think of as, as the person impeding progress, right? And while that's maybe a politically savvy decision i think again the issue is that you have local and state officials who are struggling to implement these programs i mean the money's already there it's not like you need to go to congress and get it appropriated it's there it's just not getting out fast enough um, and if you if you care about forestalling evictions i think that you know i don't know why you wouldn't focus as much energy on on that point as you are on on the getting the eviction
1: moratoriums which in my mind i think are are uh, very unlikely to survive judicial challenge Okay, thanks both. We will get into the history of homelessness in a moment. First, I need to remind you to subscribe to The Economist if you don't already. It's very easy. The best offer is at economist.com slash US pod. This week, you'll be able to read Aaron's terrific report from Seattle. We have a long, brilliant piece on open source intelligence. And you can check out our daily charts. This week, there's one showing the US plummeting down the Global Vaccination League table. Again, Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode.
2: Rejoice and be glad for the springtime has come. We can throw down our
0: shovels and go on the bum. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. The
1: Hallelujah. expansion of America's railroads after the Civil War first made homelessness visible. The word hobo appeared in the 1880s. Tramps riding the rails were romanticized in song and by writers like Jack London and Walt Whitman.
2: Without any bail Hallelujah, I'm a bum.
1: The hobo's Hallelujah. disdain for the monotony of industrial work Hallelujah. made them notable less as a social problem than a counterculture. Again. Modern conceptions of homelessness emerged 100 years later thanks to two big policy shifts, the deinstitutionalization of the mentally ill and cuts to welfare budgets. The idea was that people languishing in grim psychiatric institutions would fare better with community-based services. State hospitals housing half a million Americans in 1960 had barely 100,000 residents by 1980. But the community services never materialized. The federal housing department's budget halved during the 1980s and eligibility for disability benefits tightened. The truth is that it can happen to just about anybody and that's what's got us so scared. One man did more than anyone to draw attention to that growing problem. They
2: are middle class people, they're old people, they're poor people, they're young people. You find every walk of life, every color, every age, every size
1: represented on the street. Mitch Snyder was a vacuum cleaner salesman from New York who walked out on his job and his family. A spell in prison turned him onto activism. As the nightmare in Vietnam ended, anti-war campaigners were turning their attention to the plight of veterans returning to America with mental health problems and nowhere to live.
2: All those folks share in common is only one thing, and that is that at some point in time, they needed help desperately because of some, either temporary
1: or permanent disability, in Washington, Snyder became a creative advocate for people living on the streets. His stunts included public funerals for those frozen to death, jumping the White House fence, and spilling blood on the Capitol steps. A hunger strike on the eve of Ronald Reagan's reelection forced the federal government to hand over a building in Washington city center to be converted into America's largest homeless shelter. Snyder took his own life in 1990. The square outside the shelter now bears his name. His advocacy had helped Americans realize who the homeless really were. In the 1980s, they were likely to have medical and mental health issues, and for the first time, significant numbers of women and families joined them, a very different cohort from the hobos of old. now i'm I'm dating myself a bit here. I grew up in washington d c and I was fifteen years old when Mitch Snyder killed himself. I remember his activism very well. Erin, you've done reporting on homelessness from from Seattle. Is there a similar sense of activism a charismatic activist like him what is what what is what does action around homelessness look like there?
0: Well, I think one thing that really struck me about his Kind of testimony about who actually is homeless is how similar that was to a lot of what I heard in Seattle. I was at a meeting at a tiny house village, which is a community of very small one room, like colorfully painted houses that in Seattle and in some other places are on offer for homeless people as an alternative to traditional shelters. And one of the people I was talking to there told me that when they go out to homeless encampments and they talk to people living in them, you know, it's not people who have been out of work for decades and are all suffering from mental illness and substance abuse, though, of course, a lot of those people um, are also homeless. It might be your barista at your local coffee shop or a grocery store clerk or people that you wouldn't necessarily think of when you think of homelessness.
1: So is there a skid row in Seattle? Is there an area where homeless people are living on the streets, or is Seattle making a real effort to get them into houses and shelters?
0: It's really interesting. There's no one area anymore where there's a giant sprawling homeless camp. Um, Tents have really kind of cropped up in neighborhoods all around the city, but there is a historic district right in downtown Seattle that at one point was called the Skid Road, and the history of it is really fascinating, and I didn't know the etymology of Skid Row before I reported this story, but basically it began as a logging district. Um, people would cut down trees. When Seattle was very new in like the 1850s, we're talking about at the top of this big hill in what is now downtown Seattle, and They would roll the trees down the hill, but they called it skidding them, um, down the hill towards the waterfront where they would be, you know, chopped up and shipped off for lumber. Um, But that district evolved to eventually house manual laborers. Um, It was home to a lot of brothels to cater to all the young men that had come west to work in Seattle or to um, come in search of land or gold. And over time, it kind of evolved into this rather seedy district where people could be housed very cheaply in, like, wonk parlance. They're called single-room occupancy hotels, but they're just very cheap hotels. And those were all torn down as Seattle developed and became the city that it is today, and those people were scattered. And today, kind of the only remnants that you see of historical Skid Road are a sign that says, you know, rooms 75 cents in neon that's vintage and doesn't really refer to anything anymore, and a new homeless encampment in a park nearby. Um, So it's kind of the latest iteration of what for a long time in Seattle's history has been a district where impoverished and vulnerable people have congregated.
1: Idris, we heard Mitch Snyder talk a bit about disability as one of the causes of homelessness. But of course, it causes homelessness because you then can't pay your rent, which raises another question. Like the ultimate cause of homelessness is people not being able to pay for a home. So, what effect do housing costs have on, on homelessness? Um,
2: from what we can tell, housing costs and high housing costs are the big determinant of homelessness rates in cities in America. Um, that's why, you know, from 2007 to 2016, Um, America had actually a a decline in in homelessness. And since then, it's started to go up. But it's especially gone up in in California um, overall, as housing costs in that state have gotten pretty out of control. What people sometimes don't realize about homelessness is that their sort of archetypal homeless person is someone who they encounter who is unsheltered, living on the street. Um, and possibly has a mental illness and possibly has an addiction to some substance. Um, and in in the homelessness advocate community, those people are known as chronically homeless or tri- triply afflicted, you know, um, unsheltered um, with mental illness and with an addiction. And those are the hardest cases. And those are often the ones that people encounter. But, you know, they're actually just – they're not even the majority of overall homeless people in America. If, if you look at the Federal Housing and Urban Development Agency's uh, point-in-time counts, you see that they're only a fraction of the overall um, uh, homeless population. And when you when you think about it that way and you think about what's driving the size of, of growth in some places – um, the correlation between housing costs and the fact that you know, in, in a sizable portion of LA's population, for example, is forced to pay 90% of their income uh, just on housing, um, you you then as a result, you get a mechanical almost increase, inevitable increase in, in homelessness, right? And it's not people who are living on the streets necessarily. It's people who are living in temporary shelters, people who are doubling up with families, people who are living in their cars. And the tight correlation between housing costs and and homelessness i think can't be discounted
1: thanks both we'll be back in a moment to hear about some of the solutions being proposed
0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.
1: About half of America's rough sleepers are in California. Aaron, for your report in this week's issue, you looked into the state's efforts to deal with the problem.
0: I did, yeah. I think the place to start there is to kind of backtrack a little bit to before the pandemic. In Gavin Newsom, the governor of California's state of the state address, which is like the state of the union, but for California in 2020, before COVID really started spreading in the U.S., he devoted his entire speech to talking about homelessness and housing, which is not a thing that happens. Normally, those speeches will run the gamut on all kinds of policy priorities. And so that was kind of a signal that he recognized that the housing crisis is a crisis. And he announced ambitious measures to try to deal with homelessness in California. Um, And California has more homeless people than any other state in the country. Because of the pandemic and budget surpluses that states have seen, thanks to federal stimulus dollars, California actually has the money to devote to these programs. That's not to say it did not devote a lot of money to homelessness in the past. Over the past three years prior to the pandemic, the state spent $13 billion trying to tackle the problem. But its new budget devotes $12 billion exclusively towards homelessness. So it's a lot of money. And I spoke to Jason Elliott, who is a senior advisor to Gavin Newsom and kind of the SAR of housing and homelessness policy in the state. And he told me how California responded to helping homeless people when the pandemic hit.
4: We were basically operating under the assumption with the best public health minds around the table that we had maybe six weeks to shelter Tens of thousands of homeless people, and the consequence for failing to do so was going to be 25,000 homeless people dead. Um, so that was the challenge that was in front of us. So you don't have a lot of time in situations like that to sit around and think about things. What are we going to do about it? Let's just do this thing we had planned to do already, which is take hotel rooms and use them for a homeless shelter. Of course, we were benefited by the fact that no one was traveling because we had just put the state under a stay at home order. So you have empty hotels. You have a deep need for capacity right now. And we started working with counties across the state of California to put these hotels under lease and start moving clients in as quickly as possible. In parallel, as we were developing the program, by the way, the program from the very get-go included um, hot meals, uh, mental health, behavioral health, and physical health care, housing counseling, custodial janitorial security. Linen, service, all of those sorts of things that you would imagine would be necessary. And and so you've got a model that works. You've got a funding stream that covers 100% of the local government's cost. And you add all those things together, 42,000 people have been sheltered by Project Roomkey since we started it last April. To put that number into perspective, in California, on any given night, we have about 160,000 homeless people. So you start to understand the scale of, of what the governor was able to accomplish with, with this program.
0: Was it hard to get hotel owners on board to participate in a program like this?
4: In some cases it was, um, but we were never looking to lease every hotel in California. So we had enough willing owners, um, especially through some of the larger chains. Uh, we had enough willing owners that we were able to create the capacity we needed.
0: So, so now. Kind of as you mentioned, you're winding down Project Room Key, or at least the number of rooms you're using is lower. Are the folks that have exited, do they go wherever they want to go when they leave? Do you refer them to other temporary housing?
4: Something like 25% of Project Room Key participants exited back into unsheltered homelessness. We'd love it to be zero. But I will say when you compare that success rate to the success rate of like a normal congregate shelter, project room key is orders of magnitude, more successful in getting people into more stability. And it's not too complicated as to why. If you or I became homeless, what I would want is a quiet space with a door that locks so I can sleep well at night, I can leave my things and a toilet and a, and a sink. That's what I'd want, that's what you'd want. And frankly, that's what people exiting homelessness want and when you're able to provide those basic amenities people do better social emotional outcomes are better housing placement exits are better self esteem goes up sobriety sticks longer there's just a whole bunch of reasons why non congregate shelter forget project room key just simply non congregate shelter is a more successful model
0: okay fast forward a year and and now you've got you know 12 billion dollars in the new budget towards housing and homelessness. What really is that money going to go towards?
4: It's about buying hotels and motels, but it's not just hotels and motels. It's also vacant apartment buildings. It's modular housing. It's commercial office building conversions. It's a whole bunch of different building typologies, all with the spirit of quickly build interim and permanent supportive housing for people quickly and cost-effectively. Beyond just traditional homeless housing, and and this is actually, I think, perhaps the most important part of what's in the entire bill, behavioral health housing. People that need deep behavioral health, sustained behavioral health counseling, clinically enhanced. We don't have places in California for those people to live. We don't have the beds. We don't have the slots. We don't have the units. Ronald Reagan, when he was governor of this great state in 1967, shut down the state hospital system, which is effectively the mental health hospital system, with the promise that we were going to build a community network of behavioral health placements. That second part never happened. So what happened was the, you know, this is not the this is not the term we use today, but the mental hospitals were closed with no place for people to go. So this budget begins to rebuild that behavioral health housing continuum which is so long overdue in California and frankly, nowhere in the United States has really done a very good job of this. And that goes back decades. The Republicans and Democrats, progressives, conservatives, we just haven't done it. And Governor Newsom, I would say, without putting words in his mouth, is most proud of this particular part of the broader homelessness package, which is finally rebuilding that behavioral health continuum. This is the moment. We have a moment here where we can make a difference on homelessness. Uh, We have the resources in place. We have the law in place. And now the challenge is, what are we going to do?
1: So Idris, we heard Jason Elliott discuss California's extremely ambitious plan to tackle homelessness by putting people in hotel rooms, by buying up hotel rooms, by giving people rooms. Do you think this is going to work? Is it possible to tackle the homeless crisis without also tackling high housing costs?
2: You know, I wish that if we check in a year from now, that we see a measurable and very stark decline in homelessness in California. But um, I think it's hard, and I think that progress is is unlikely to happen. Um, and the reason for my pessimism is just imagine: so the ultimate outcome for a person who's homeless, you know, in some cases it could be permanent supportive housing that folks just need to live in, in that um, indefinitely. In other cases, though, and in fact, I would think in the majority of cases, it is that you get back up on your feet and are able to rent an apartment to get a job and sort of go back into self-sufficiency, right? Everyone agrees that that's the ultimate outcome that we would like. If rents are $2,000 a month for a studio and you have a huge gap on your resume, how is that going to happen? I mean, you know, just the, the barrier there is so high. And Newsom, Governor Newsom, for all of his you know efforts on homelessness has really not stepped in in a very big way on the debate that's happening in California on what to do about the pathological zoning rules in the state that are resulting in rents skyrocketing, have resulted in rents skyrocketing in LA, in San Francisco. This is something where the state has designed a thicket of regulation and policy that is not only hurting aggregate growth, but is resulting in a homelessness rate that is above the nation's average. Homelessness is ultimately a housing policy failure. And while it's great to do as much as you can once you have a homeless population, you know, absolutely put them in hotels. Absolutely spend a lot of money to make sure that there's substance abuse treatment and all all sorts of things that you can direct. But, you know, if, if you have no attention to the pipeline that's generating homelessness in in, in in a huge degree, then you're doomed to just the Sisyphean task of, of repeating yourself California is I think kind of the worst offender on housing policy and a serious homelessness agenda I think starts with fixing housing policy in addition to all of the things that, that he's discussing
0: California does have funds going to building affordable housing also um, but that doesn't solve. The zoning problems and the problems with how long permitting takes and all of those fun things. But I will say, while the hotel schemes have proved effective and the evidence behind pouring money into them is solid, a lot of people I talked to kind of noted the risk of building up this temporary shelter infrastructure, which is a salve and, you know, will help get people off the streets, which is what you want. But it is not a solution to homelessness. And if you, I think it's illustrative to look at New York City, which has more homeless people than any other city in the country, but they're sheltered because there's a right to shelter law in the city. So anybody who shows up and needs shelter can have it. So only 5% of New York City's homeless population is sleeping rough, but That doesn't mean there's not a huge homeless population. And so I think while building temporary shelters is important, you have to keep in mind that it's not a long-term solution. And the long-term solution is everything that Idris just mentioned in terms of building affordable housing.
1: That is a tall order, tackling homelessness and housing and zoning policies, especially somewhere like California, where you have a lot of opposition to multifamily housing in, in, in middle and upper class neighborhoods. Erin, tell me about the politics of fighting homelessness in the places that you've covered.
0: It's really fascinating once you dig into it. Um, when I was at that tiny house village, I asked a local politician if questions about homelessness and whether or not to break up encampments. Um, And all these things reveals fault lines among liberals. And there was just this kind of silence at the table. Um, And uh, he responded that maybe the question would be better phrased if we're talking about progressives, which I thought was really interesting um, and kind of revealed to me that liberals as like a catch all term was not useful in that context because Seattle is so liberal um, and exists a con- kind of on this very blue spectrum. So you have democratic socialists and progressive folks who don't want to break up encampments because they argue doing so is really traumatic for the people living there, um, especially people who suffer from mental illness or substance abuse. And then you have more moderate liberals. The politician I talked to called them Joe Biden liberals, um, which exist on the right of Seattle's political spectrum, argue that that may be true. But allowing people to live outside is not humane either and it does not benefit ever, anyone. So you have kind of these competing arguments that are playing out in cities all along the west coast and are dominating the politics of the mayoral races in Seattle and then likely in Los Angeles this fall.
1: So as Aaron pointed out, homelessness is politically important in California and in Seattle. And I remember when I was a boy when Mitch Snyder was active, it had a huge political salience in 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 DC. It seems to me that it's somewhat absent from the national political conversation at the moment. Do you think that's fair, Idris? Yeah,
2: absolutely. I think that in in my time in D.C. covering this stuff, I haven't seen much of a concerted effort to address housing policy um, from Congress. But that's partially because of the way that that it's set up. It's quite devolved to states and cities, so you know, there's not not much impetus to. to Address these issues federally, and you know the agency that does do uh, quite a lot of the homelessness services, and especially the funding, um, is HUD, the Housing and Urban Development Agency, um, which you know Congress is is not particularly interested in. It seems like it's not one of the the flashier agencies that sort of gets uh, news
1: coverage by the press corps uh, that much in D.C. I wish I could find a reason to disagree with your pessimism, Idris, but I'm struggling to come up with one between the sort of diffuse nature of the homeless problem and the perpetual gridlock in Washington and the fact that the homeless just don't have a real voice for them, the way that Mitch Snyder was for the homeless in DC. I think you're right that this just does not become part of the national political conversation barring a crisis that, God forbid, should take a turn for the for the worse.
2: Um, I, w- I will say that Cori Bush is trying to be that advocate, right, by sleeping outside. And she in- is introducing a bill to um, that aims to end homelessness. Obviously, it's not going to go very far in the House of Representatives, but she's, she's trying.
0: It's important to say also that because of all of the funding slashing around and the attention that the issue is at least getting in states and cities – it does feel like a moment where some progress can be made. So to kind of counter both of your pessimism, I would just end with a note of optimism and say, it feels bad to say that anything good can ever come from this pandemic because it's been so horrible for so many people. But if there is a chance to reduce the homeless population, then that's a good thing.
1: That's a good note of optimism to end on. But before we depart... There is a quiz that I finally get to give and not take. This is much more fun.
0: That means we have a chance.
1: Yeah. The Economist reported on homelessness and urban renewal in Seattle back in October 1988, noting the vagrants and winos that still hung around Skid Road. The dispatch also pointed out that despite the city's natural beauty, a disproportionate number of Seattle's residents killed themselves. What was blamed for this gloomy statistic? The rain?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I would say, like, overcast weather.
1: Yeah, gray skies. Gray skies, points all around. But Seattle is not the wettest city in America. Which city in the lower 48 holds that accolade?
0: Are we talking big cities?
1: My lips are sealed. Key West? Portland. Which one?
0: I was going to say Oregon, but now I feel like it's Maine.
1: Well, I don't know why I asked which one, because neither is correct. Sorry. Um, (laughs) The wettest city is Mobile, Alabama. And in fact, America's wettest cities are all in the southeast. Among the top five are New Orleans, Miami, West Palm Beach, and Pensacola. So I think Idris gets half a point for proximity. The wettest place in the northwest is Olympia, Washington, which comes in 24th.
0: That tracks. Every time I've been to Seattle, it's been beautiful.
1: (laughs) Yeah,
2: it it is a really beautiful city. I really enjoyed going there.
1: Well, this was fun. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Idris. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Thanks for having me on.
1: My pleasure. And thank you also to John Shields, to Carla Patella, in addition to John Prito being back next week, Nico Ralfast will as well. I hope they both had wonderful vacations. And uh, that's a wrap. See you next week.